Book Four, Chapter Thirteen of the Heavenly Twins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devora Allen. The Heavenly Twins by Sarah G. Book Four, Chapter Thirteen. A few nights after the tenor had signed the agreement, the boy burst in upon him, exclaiming in guttural accents. "'Oh, my dear friend, have I found you?' Then he threw his hat on the floor and began to prance up and down, waving his hands ecstatically. The tenor picked up a cushion and threw it at him. "'You wretched boy,' he said, laughing. "'Who told you he did that?' "'Oh, my dear Israfil,' the boy replied. "'Why on earth do you ask who told me? "'You must know by this time, and if you don't you should, "'that genius does not require to be told.' "'Given the man and the circumstances, "'and we'll tell you exactly what he'll do, don't you know?' "'And the boy showed his teeth. "'But the tenor was not convinced. "'Knowing your patience and zeal when engaged in the pursuit of knowledge, "'I think that was the euphemism you employed "'the last time you had to apologize "'for the unscrupulous indulgence of your boundless curiosity.' "'The tenor, standing with his back to the boy, "'observed with easy deliberation, "'as he filled and lighted a pipe.' I have little doubt that you assisted at the interview from some safe coin of vantage, to borrow another of your pet expressions, perhaps from the closet under the stairs there. Or from behind the sofa, the boy suggested, with that enigmatical grin of his which the tenor disliked, perhaps because it was enigmatical. Like my new suit, Israfil, he demanded in exactly the same tone. He had on a spotless flannel boating suit, with a silk handkerchief of many colors, "'nodded picturesquely round his neck. "'It's too new,' said the tenor. "'It looks as if you'd got it for private theatricals "'and taken great care of it.' "'The boy laughed, and then, assuming another character, "'he began to remonstrate with himself playfully in the tenor's voice. "'Boy, will you never be more manly?' "'And, don't mock, boy!' "'And, boy, you have no soul!' "'And, oh, boy, you're not high-minded!' "'Then he did a love scene between the tenor and Angelica.' The tenor tried to stop this last performance, but he only made matters worse, for the boy argued the question out in Angelica's voice, taking the part of Dear Claude. He still insisted that his name was Claude. And ending with, Dear Israfil, we are so happy ourselves, I think Claude should have a little latitude tonight. He studies so hard, poor boy, he deserves some indulgence. When this amusement ceased to divert him, he announced his intention of going on the stage, of not going home till morning, and of being rowed down the river in the meantime. "'But where will you get a boat at this time of night?' the tenor objected. "'You're not a man of much imagination,' said the boy, "'or you wouldn't have asked such a question. "'How do you suppose I come every night, "'after all the world is barred and bolted out of your sacred clothes, "'and the alternative lies between the porter at the postern, "'whom you know I shun, and the water-gate? "'Do you mean to say you row yourself down the river every time you come?' "'I do,' said the boy complacently. "'I didn't think you could,' was the tenor's naive ejaculation. The boy was delighted. "'It never struck you, I suppose,' he chuckled, "'that my fragile appearance might be delusive. "'Haven't you noticed I never tire?' "'Yes,' said the tenor. "'But I thought that you probably paid for these nights of dissipation by days of languor.' The boy laughed again. "'Don't know the sensation,' he declared. "'Days of laziness would be nearer the mark. "'I have plenty of them.' It was a lovely night, all pervaded by the fragrance of the flowers in the gardens round about the close. 
They sauntered out, turning to the left from the tenor's cottage, the cathedral being on their right, the cloisters in front. The boy walked up to the ladder and peeped in. "'Come here, dear Israfil,' he said obligingly, "'and I will show you the beauties of the place. "'These are the cloisters, and as you see they form a hollow square, "'nearly two hundred feet long and twelve feet wide. "'Yon slowly rising moon shows the bare quadrangle in the center, "'and the tracery of the windows opposite. "'But the exquisite groining of the roof "'and the quaintly sculptured bosses are still hidden in deep darkness. "'The light, however, brightens in the northeast corner, and— "'If you weren't in such a— <clears throat> "'Hurry, Israfil!' The tenor had walked on, but the boy stayed where he was, and now began to improve the occasion at the top of his voice. The tenor returned hurriedly. "'For heaven's sake, hold your tongue,' he expostulated. "'You'll wake the whole close.' "'I was calling your attention to the details of the architecture,' the boy rejoined politely. And as usual, for the sake of peace and quietness, the unfortunate tenor was obliged to hear him out. When he stopped, the tenor exclaimed, "'Thank heaven!' devoutly." then added, "'No fear for your exams, boy, if you can cram like that. But I did not know you were a cultivated archaeologist.' "'Nor am I,' said the boy with a shiver. "'I hate architecture, and I don't want to know about it, but I can't help picking it up. It is horrid to remember that that arch yonder was built in the time of William the Conqueror. I never look at it without feeling the oppression of the ages come upon me. And when I get into this bigoted clothes and think of the heathenish way the people live in it, "'shutting themselves in from the rest of the citizens "'with unchristian ideas of their own superiority, "'I am confirmed in my unbelief. "'I feel if there were any truth in that religion, "'those who profess it would have begun "'to practice its precepts by this time. "'They would not be content to teach it forever "'without trying it themselves. "'And, oh!' shaking his fist at the cathedral, "'I loathe the deeds of darkness "'that are done there in the name of the Lord.' "'What unhappy experience are you alluding to, boy?' "'said the tenor, concerned. I was thinking of Edith. Poor Edith Beale, the boy replied. But don't ask me to tell you that story if you have not heard it. It makes my blood boil with indignation. I have heard it, the tenor answered sadly. But boy, dear, every honest man deplores such circumstances as much as you do. Then why do they occur? the boy asked hotly. If the honest men were in earnest, such blackguardism would not go unpunished. But don't let us talk about it. They went through the arm of the close in the centre of which the lime-trees grew, round a grassy space enclosed from the road by a light iron railing. "'This is grateful!' the boy exclaimed, as they passed under the old trees, lingering a while to listen to the rustle and murmur of the leaves. Then they emerged once more into the moonlight, and took their way down the little lane that led to the water-gate. Here they found an elegant cockle-shell of a boat tied up. "'A most ladylike craft,' said the tenor. "'I'll steer,' said the boy, fixing the rudder, and then arranging the cushions for himself, while the tenor meekly took the oars. With one strong stroke he brought the boat into midstream, then headed her down the river toward the sea, and settled to his oars with a long, steady pull that roused the admiration of the boy. "'You row like a varsity man,' he said. "'So I should,' was the laconic rejoinder. "'Are you a varsity man?' "'I am.' "'Oxford, then, I'll bet.' "'And did you take your degree?' The tenor nodded. "'Well, you are a queer chap,' said the boy. "'Were you expelled?' The tenor shook his head. "'Did you do anything disgraceful?' The tenor again made a sign of negation. "'Then why on earth did you come and bury yourself alive in Morning Quest?' 
"'That I might have the pleasure of rowing you down the river by moonlight, apparently,' the tenor answered, but without a smile. "'I'd give my ears to know,' the boy ejaculated. "'I quite believe you would,' said the tenor, pausing to speak. After which he bent to his oars with a will, and the banks became a moving panorama to their vision as they passed. Now they swept under a light iron bridge that crossed the river with one bold span, and connected a busy thoroughfare of the city with a pleasant shady suburb beyond. Then they wound round a curve, and on their left was a broad towing-path, and beautiful old trees, and a high paling made of sleepers shutting out the view, while on the right those crowded dwellings of the poor which add so much to a picture, especially by moonlight, and so little to the loveliness of life, rose from the water's edge and straggled up the rising ground, tumbling over each other in every sort of picturesque irregularity. Ahead of them the river was landlocked by a wooded hill, and also facing them was an old round tower on the towing-path, above which the round moon shone in an empty indigo sky. "'Stop a minute, Israfil,' said the boy, "'and turn your head. Who does it make you think of?' "'Old Chrome,' the tenor answered, looking over his shoulder. "'It is perfect.' The river was quite narrow here, and on either side were long lines of pleasure-boats moored to the bank, and an occasional flat tied up for the night, with its big brown sails, looking like webbed wings hoisted to dry. Further on they met a barge coming up the river, and the boy wished the man who was steering a polite good-night, and hoped he'd have a pleasant passage in no bad weather. To which piece of facetiousness the bargee replied good-humouredly, having mistaken the boy's contralto for a woman's voice, an error of judgment at which the latter affected to rage, much to the amusement of the tenor. But they were out of the city by this time. On their right was a gentleman's park, well wooded, and sloping up from the river to a gentle eminence crowned by a crest of trees. On their left, across some fields, the villas of that pleasant suburb before mentioned studded the rising ground, appearing also among old trees, beneath which they and their quiet gardens nestled peacefully. There were trees everywhere, beech and laburnum and larch, horse-chestnut and lime and poplar, as far as the eye could reach, and the latter, standing straight up in the barer spots, were a notable feature in the landscape, as were also the alder-cars and occasional osier-beds dotted about in marshy places. The pleasant suburb straggled out to an ancient village, past which a reach of the river wound, but the boy kept the boat to the main stream. They could see the village street, however, with the quaint church on the level, and light warm airs brought them odours of roses and mignonette from the gardens. It had been a long pull for a hot night, and the tenor shipped his oars here, and threw himself back in the bow to rest. He lay looking up at the sky while they drifted back little by little with the tide. The balmy air, the lop-lop of the water against the boat, the rock and sway and sense of dreamy movement, and ever and anon the nightingales, made a time of soft excitement, such as the boy loved. "'Oh, Israfil!' he burst out. "'Isn't it delicious just to be alive?' He was lolling in the stern with his hat off, his legs stretched out before him, and a tiller rope in each hand, the image of indolent ease. "'Yes, this is perfect.' he added. It is paradise. Not for you, I should think, said the tenor, without an eve. Now there you mistake me, the boy replied. If there be one thing I deprecate more than another, it is the impertinent intrusion of sex into everything. You surprise me, the tenor answered idly. When I first had the pleasure of meeting you, 
love was a favorite topic of yours. Ah, at that time, yes, said the boy. You see, I was merely pandering then to what I supposed to be your taste, in order to ingratiate myself with you. But you may have noticed that since I knew you better I have allowed the subject to drop, except, of course, when I wanted to draw you. That is true, said the tenor upon reflection. And yet you are the most sensuous little brute I know. Sensuous, yes, not sensual, said the boy. I take my pleasures daintily, and this scene satisfies me heart and soul. Balmy air, moonlight with its myriad associations, a murmurous multitude of sounds like sighs all soothing. The silent drift and gentle rocking of the boat, and the calm human fellowship, the brotherly love, undisturbed by a single violent emotion, which is the perfection of social intercourse to me. I say the scene is hallowed, and I'll have no sex in my paradise. The last words were uttered irritably, and he sat up as he spoke, thrust his hands into his pockets, and frowned at the silvery surface of the river. Love, he ejaculated. Rot. It is not love they mean. But don't let us desecrate a night like this with any idea that lowers us to the level of a beastly French novel reeking with sensuality. Amen, with all my heart, said the tenor lazily. But don't introduce the disturbing element of violence either, dear boy. Your sentiments may be refined, but the same cannot be said for the expressions in which you clothe them. In fact, to describe the latter, I don't think coarse would be too strong a word. No, not coarse, said the boy with his uncanny grin. Vigorous, you mean, dear. But now shut up, I want to think. You don't. You want to feel, said the tenor. The boy threw his cap at him. Then they resettled themselves, lolling luxuriously, the one in the bows, the other in the stern, and the tenor's soul was uplifted, as was the case with him in every pause of life, to the heaven of heavens which only could contain it, while the boys roamed away to realms of poesy where it reveled amid blossoming rhymes, or rested satisfied on full-blown verses, some of which he presently began to chant to himself monotonously. "'I like that,' he broke off at last. "'There is quite an idea in it. Well worked out, too, don't you think?' "'What is the thing?' the tenor asked. "'Who wrote it?' "'I wrote it myself,' said the boy. The tenor roused himself and got out the oars, but sat resting on them with a faraway look in his dreamy eyes. He was bareheaded, and the moon played on his yellow hair, making it shine, a detail which did not escape the boy, whose pleasure in the tenor's beauty never tired. "'I didn't know you were a poet as well as a musician,' the latter said at last. "'Ah, you have much to learn,' the boy answered complacently, then added, "'I am extremely versatile.' "'Jack of all trades,' said the tenor. "'Now don't be coarse,' said the boy. "'Well,' "'I hope that is not the best specimen of your powers in that line,' the tenor dryly pursued. "'By no means,' was the candid rejoinder. "'But the most appropriate, seeing that I just made it for the occasion, which is not a great occasion, don't you know?' "'I've heard something very like it before,' said the tenor. "'Yes,' said the boy, with a gratified smile. "'That is the beauty of it. There is no new-fangled nonsense about me. My verses always tremble with agreeable reminiscences.' They set the sensitive, sympathetic chords of memory vibrating pleasurably. You can hardly read anything I write without being reminded of some one or other of your best friends in the language. I have written some verses which I can assure you were a triumph of this art. He made an artistic pause here, shook his head, and then ejaculated solemnly, But, Lord, how I did rage when the fact was first pointed out to me. The tenor got the boat round, 
and with an occasional dip of the oars to keep it in midstream, allowed it to drift slowly back toward Morning Quest. "'I'm afraid you are precocious, boy,' he said at last. "'Don't be so if you can help it. The thing is detestable.' "'I really think I shall be obliged to avoid you, Israfil,' the boy rejoined. "'If I let you be intimate, you will be giving me good advice. "'Look there!' the tenor turned hastily. "'But there was nothing wrong. "'It was only that they had reached a point from which they could obtain a view "'that pleased the boy's excitable fancy. "'A bend of the river, a glimpse of upland meadows, "'woods with the cathedral spire above them, "'and the square outline of the castle overhanging the city "'from its dominant site on the hill, "'and seeming to guard it as it slept.' The tenor looked a little, then dipped his oars and rowed a stroke or two. The boy's mood had changed. He was keenly susceptible to the refining influences of beautiful scenes. His countenance cleared and softened as he gazed, and the tenor knew that he would jeer no more that night. Presently they heard the city clock striking the hour. Both listened, waiting for the chime. The tenor rested on his oars, and after it had sounded, muffled by distance but quite distinct, he still sat so, gazing thoughtfully into the water. "'Boy, shall I tell you something?' he said at last. The boy gravely responded with a nod. "'It was not far from where we are now,' the tenor continued, "'that I first heard the chime. Oh, ever so many years ago.' And he brushed his hand back over his hair. "'You were a boy then?' "'Yes, a lad like you, perhaps younger. I had been working in a colliery.' The work was too hard for me, and I was coming up the morn on a barge to try and get something lighter to do in one of the towns. We came up very slowly, and it was a hot day, and I idled about for hours, looking at the water over the side and at the banks of the river as we passed, but without thinking of anything. What I saw made me feel. I was conscious of various sensations, pleasure, wonder, amusement, and above all of a dreamful ease but I could not translate sensations into words at that time. They suggested no ideas. There had been nothing in my life so far to rouse my mental faculties, and I was conscious without being intelligent, as I suppose the beasts of the field are. I must have been happy then, but I did not know it. As we approached Morning Quest, I heard the chime. It was very faint at first, for we were still a long way off, but the next time it sounded we were nearer, and the next it was quite distinct and it seemed to me to mean something. So I asked the old bargee who was steering, and he told me. I could neither read nor write at that time, and I had never heard of Christ, but I loved music, and the idea of a great beneficent being who slumbered not nor slept, but watched over us all forever, took possession of my imagination, and I caught up the notes and words and sang them with all my heart. And when we got to the outskirts of the city, a gentleman who had been sitting on the towing-path "'sketching the old houses on the opposite side of the river, "'heard me, and hailed the barge and came on board. "'Which is your sweet singer?' he asked, "'and the old fellow who was steering nodded toward me, "'and answered, The lad there. "'And the gentleman said if I would go away with him, "'he would have me taught music and make a great singer of me. "'And you went?' "'Yes,' said the tenor, with his habitual gesture. "'The gentleman was a bachelor,' he resumed, "'with few near relations.' He was very rich, very liberal, and passionately fond of art in all its branches. That was why he took me at first, but by and by he began to like me for myself. He had me educated as his own son might have been, and I loved him as if he had been my father. Oh, boy, he was a good man, 
you never would have scoffed at religion and truth had you been brought up by him. I rested on his affection as surely as you rely on the obligation of your nearest of kin. I knew that, even if I had lost my voice or otherwise disappointed him, it would have made no difference. Once my friend, he would always have been my friend. But I did not lose my voice, nor did I otherwise disappoint him, I trust. The tenor paused a moment. He was always sure that I was gentle by birth, he resumed, and all my tutors said I must have come of an educated race because I was so teachable. Everything in the new life came to me naturally. I never had any trouble. My friend tried hard to find my parents, but all that was known of me in the place I came from was that a collier, who lived alone in a little cottage, went home late one night and found me asleep on his bed. They thought I was only a few days old then, and had kept my clothes, which were such as a gentleman's child would have worn, but there was no mark on any of them, nor any clue by which I could be identified, except the name, David Julian Vaintemple, scrawled on a scrap of paper in a woman's hand, an educated hand. The collier brought me up somehow, though heaven alone knows how, considering my age and his own occupation. Do you know, boy, one of the most weary things in life is the sense of an obligation that you can never repay. If I could only have done something to prove my gratitude to my first foster-father. But there, I must not think of it. It is better to hope that all he did for me was a pleasure to himself at the time, though there must have been much more trouble than pleasure at first. But he was very kind, and I was very happy with him. Here the tenor paused again for a while, and then resumed. When I was old enough he took me down to the pit occasionally, but he would not let me work until I was much past the age at which the other boys began. He said I was not one of them, my build was different, and I was quite unfit for such rough labor, and so it proved, but I persevered as long as he lived. It was not very long, however, for he was killed one day by an explosion of gas down in the mine, while trying to rescue some other poor fellows who had been blocked up in a gallery for days by a fall. His dog was killed at the same time. He liked to have his family with him, he said, and we were generally both beside him when he was at work. But he sent me off on an impossible errand to a neighboring town that day. I did not suspect it at the time, but I know now that it was to keep me out of harm's way. And so I was left quite alone in the world, and I thought the place where I had had a friend was more desolate than strange places with which I had no such tender associations would be. And so I wandered away, and wandered about, until I was found by my next friend on the barge, and the new life began for me. "'Then he never found out who you were?' the boy exclaimed. "'No, never.' "'And why did you leave him?' The tenor shipped his oars. "'He had a place in Scotland, to which we went every autumn for shooting,' he began to answer indirectly, and then stopped. The boy was leaning forward, with his eyes riveted on the tenor's face. His delicate features were pale and drawn with excitement and interest. His lips were parted. He scarcely seemed to breathe.' There was a long pause. The moonlight still streamed down upon them. The water lapped against the sides of the boat, and sparkled and rippled all around them, its murmurs mingling with the rustle of leaves, the sighing of sleeping cattle, the manifold, inarticulate voices of the night, above which a nightingale in a copse hard by sang out at intervals divinely. "'My friend was not conventional in anything,' the tenor began again at last. When he went out shooting, for instance, he liked to find his own game, as he would have had to do in the wilds. All the sport of the thing lay in that, he said. 
It was just the difference between nature and artifice. We were therefore in the habit of going out alone, that is to say, with a keeper or two and the dogs, but never with a party. Here again the tenor paused, and all the minor murmurs of the water and from the land sounded aggressively, with that sort of sound which fills the ears, but seems nevertheless to emphasize the silence and solitude at night. The boy moved restlessly once or twice, making the little boat rock, and the tenor, yielding to the eager expectancy he saw in his eyes, resumed his story. Toward the end of the season of which I have been speaking, he said, we had arranged an expedition for one particular morning. But just as we were about to start, my friend got a telegram from a man he knew, begging him as a favor to be at home that day, to receive a yachting party who were anxious to come up and see the place, and he had only a few hours to do it in. I wanted to stay and help him to entertain them, but he would not hear of it. My day's shooting was of more consequence to him than the entertainment of many guests, and he made me go alone. But I went reluctantly. I had been out alone often enough before, and had enjoyed it thoroughly. But that day, somehow, I hated to leave him, and only went to please him he made such a point of it. Once fairly started, however, I began, as was natural, to enjoy the tramp over the moors. We intended to send back for any game we might shoot, so only one old gilly accompanied me. I carried out the plans we had made the night before, going the way we had intended to go. It was deer I was after, and as luck would have it I had some splendid sport, and had begun to enter into it thoroughly before we halted to refresh ourselves at noon. After a long rest, we set off again up a wooded glen. The keeper had noticed a herd of deer only the day before, feeding at the other side, and it seemed more than probable that we should get a shot when we reached the brow of the hill, or we might perhaps meet some of them coming down the glen to drink. The afternoon was waning then, and we had turned our faces homeward. When we got to the head of the glen, the luck seemed still to be favoring us, for there on our right was a splendid fellow lording it alone on the very crest of the hill within range. I did not stop to consider, but raised my gun to my shoulder and fired instantly. But just as I pulled the trigger, someone sprang up from the heather between me and the stag, sprang up, uttered a cry, and reeled, and fell. The last words were spoken with a gasp, and the tenor stopped for an instant, and then continued in a hoarse, broken whisper, to which his companion had to listen intently, leaning forward to do so, with his great eyes dilated, and his pale lips quivering. "'Lord, sir!' the gilly exclaimed. "'You've shot the master!' "'And you had?' "'I had. Yes, I had shot him,' the tenor repeated. "'Oh, Israfil!' cried the boy, flinging himself down impetuously before him, and grasping his hands. "'When his guests had gone,' the latter continued in a broken voice, "'he strolled out to meet me. "'He had not said anything about coming, "'but he knew I meant to return by that glen. "'He did not, however, know on which side I should be, "'and he had therefore taken up his position "'on the brow of the hill from whence he could see "'every point at which I was likely to appear. "'Probably he never saw the stag. "'It was behind him.' and we, the gilly and I, neither of us saw anything else. And indeed, had there been no game, we could hardly have distinguished him at that time of the day from the hillside till he moved, for the suit he wore was just the color of the rocks and heather. We carried him home, but he was dead. Dead. Quite dead. And the tenor moaned, covering his face with his hands. I remember now, the boy said softly. I heard all about it at the time, and read the case in the papers, 
but I never thought of associating it with you. Yet, how could I have been so dull? There was an inquest, and they tried... He hesitated. They tried to make out that I had some motive, something to gain by his death, the tenor went on. But everyone, and most of all his nearest of kin, his heir, came forward to exonerate me. He had provided for me in his will, by settling the allowance he always made on me and my heirs forever. But he always said that my voice was my fortune, and he had no need to make enemies for me by giving me that which belonged by right to others. He was a just man, singularly open in all his dealings, and it was not hard to clear me, but still, oh, he broke off. It was awful, awful. And afterward, the boy ventured to ask. Afterward, the tenor repeated slowly. Afterward, for some months, I wandered about. They were all very kind. They wanted me to stay with them. They wanted to take me abroad. They would have done anything to help and comfort me. But all I cared for was to be alone. At first there was a blank. The faces about me had no meaning for me. The people, when they spoke, could scarcely make me understand. I was mad in a way but not mad enough to be insensible to sorrow. I felt the fearful calamity that had fallen upon me, but nothing else. I told myself every hour of the day that he was dead. Dead. Cruelly cut off in the midst of his happy life by me whom he loved. I could not have suffered more had I been guilty. The tenor broke off. This lasted, I hardly know how long, but eventually I began to fancy that he saw my agony of grief, and that it was a torment to him not to be able to come and comfort me. Then one day, I was in Cornwall at the time, sitting on the seashore, and all at once, it was the strangest thing in life, I heard the chime. I had not been thinking of it. I doubt if I had thought of it a dozen times since I heard it first. But it sounded for me then. Be watching over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. I heard it quite distinctly, and I got up and looked about me. It was the first thing outside myself that had arrested my attention since I had seen him drop on the moor. I went back to the inn I was staying at and asked about it, but I could scarcely make them understand what I meant, and there was certainly no such chime in that neighborhood. Then I felt it was a message sent specially to me, and I made my man pack up my things, and then I dismissed him, and started at once for Morning Quest alone. It was a long journey, and although I traveled with all possible speed, I did not arrive until nearly forty-eight hours later. It was close on midnight then, and the first thing I heard when I found myself alone in my room at the hotel was the chime itself. Have you ever noticed, or is it only my fancy, that it seems to strike louder at midnight, and with greater intensity of expression, as we ourselves strike final chords? It sounded so to me, then, and suggested something. I can't tell what, I can't define it, but something that changed the current of my thoughts, and made me feel I had done right to come. And from that moment, my grief was less self-centered, and the blessed power to feel for others began to return to me. Almost immediately after my arrival, I heard of the tragedy in the cathedral, the suicide of the tenor, and the trouble the dean and chapter were having to find a substitute. And when I had seen the quiet, shady clothes, and the beautiful old cathedral, and my little house with its high-walled garden at the back, 
standing as it were on holy ground. I longed to take up my abode there, where no one would know my story but those to whom the secret would be sacred, and no one would intrude upon my grief. So I applied for the tenor's place, and I knew as soon as I had taken the step that it was a wise one. I thought, if anything could restore the balance of my mind, it would be the regular employment, the quiet monotony, the something to do that I must do, the duty and obligation, which were just sufficient without being any tax on my powers to take me out of myself. And the being able to shut myself up from the world in the close, as I said before, was another inducement, though by far the greatest were the daily services in the cathedral. While taking part in them, I always feel that I am nearer him. When I applied for the place, and the dean heard who I was, of course he knew the story, the whole world knew it at that time, and how I yearned for a life of devotion. He sympathized with me entirely, gladly acceded to my request, and agreed to keep my secret. He has told me since that he always hoped and believed the quiet regular life would restore me, and when it had he intended to urge me to go away and make the most of my powers. Dear, kind old man, he has indeed been a good friend to me, and he is a good man himself, if ever there were one. But I seem to have known none but good men, the tenor concluded thoughtfully. But your money is refill, the boy said impatiently. What did you do with that? The question provoked the ghost of a smile. Oh, boy, that is so like you, the tenor answered. But since you wish to know, I will tell you. My income has all been disposed of for some years to come. It was a great deal more than I should have required in any case, and a lay clerk with such means would have been an anomaly not to be tolerated. But he meant that I should enjoy it, and so I have. I have held it as a sacred trust left to me for the benefit of those who are worse off than myself. I keep the principal in my own hands, but I dispose of the interest. It does not go very far, alas, in my profession, where want is the rule. But it enables me to do something, and that, till I knew you, boy, was my greatest pleasure in life. I have earned my own living almost ever since I came to Morning Quest, and being obliged to do so has been a very good thing for me. And all these pensioners, or whatever you like to call them, of yours, do they know? As a rule, my lawyers manage the business delicately, the tenor answered, smiling. He dipped his oars as he spoke, and began to row back with a will. The boy, shivering as if with cold, gathered up the tiller lines and steered mechanically. They were both subdued, and scarcely spoke till the boat touched the landing-place at the water-gate, and then the boy begged the tenor to get out, saying that he must row himself home. The tenor jumped ashore, and then, with a long grip of each other's hands, and a long look into each other's eyes, they parted in silence. The moon had set by this time, and the summer dawn was near. End of Book 4 Chapter 13